Friends, I want to ask you uh, to just spend one more minute praying with me as we approach the scriptures together. Father God, as we look at your word today and as we consider a very difficult topic, we pray now that you would allow us to have open hearts and open minds. That you would lower the defenses within us. That your spirit would speak powerfully to us. And that we would see and know and feel the types of things and the types of changes that we can be involved in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to choose a side. At least not one of the two sides that are being presented to you. Friends, we find ourselves in a time when racial tensions are high. When power has been misused. When peaceful protests have begun, but some of those peaceful protests have turned out to be riots, with portions of major cities being looted and set on fire. Television cameras are showing us images of people walking through major stores with televisions, with home items, with even prescription drugs filling their carts. Police precincts have been burned to the ground. And some celebrities, political leaders, and even community organizers have started a movement to defund the police. And this is all happening under the name of racial injustice. And there has been racial injustice. A number of terrible, terrible things have happened in our country in the last number of years. The two most recent that have been the flashpoint for these protests are on February 23rd, 2020, a 25-year-old black man named Ahmad Arbery was killed by two white men in Glynn County, Georgia. Arbery was taking a morning jog through the neighborhood and these men believed him to be a robbery suspect when in fact he was not. He was just a normal guy taking a jog. And time has shown that his murder was a murder that was fueled by racism. Just a few months later, on May 25th, 2020, a white police officer named Derek Chauvin arrested a black man named George Floyd in Minneapolis on suspicion of using bills that were forged. And in his arrest, the officer forcefully and brutally held George Floyd on the ground with his knee pressed upon Floyd's neck while Floyd continued to express that he could not breathe. Moments later, he died. He was 46 years old. And the chilling video of the killing circled the globe on the internet. And the phrase, I can't breathe, 
became the rallying cry around the issue of racial injustice. And as of today, at least 22 people have died in riots. A group of anarchists have set up an autonomous zone of six blocks in the middle of Seattle, which they have taken control, free from government intervention or police presence. Many leaders around the country are attempting to have conversations about race and about reform. Some of them are productive, but many of them are not. There are African-American folks who are on both sides of this issue as it's being presented. There are Caucasians who are on both sides of this issue as it's being presented. Phrases and movements and ideologies are being presented together with terms like Black Lives Matter and systemic racism and white privilege. And these are phrases that are being used by different people who understand them to mean different types of things. And the result is the divide between people continues to grow. And my heart grieves. This is so hard to talk about because it's so complicated. The news takes some issues that are clearly race-related or race-motivated and reports them as such, and other issues that aren't race-motivated but assigns the motives of racism to them, and it makes it really hard. But we need to talk about it I know the second that you wade into these waters that we enter some dangerous territory. I might unintentionally misrepresent someone or I might unintentionally misrepresent my own thoughts and feelings because how we talk about this, the language that we use is so careful and it needs to be. But we need to talk about it. And we need to talk about it because the Bible addresses the core issues of race, of the abuse of power, and even riots. And it gives us a way to think about it that's helpful. And we need to talk about this because there's a better way to think about it than the ways that you are be being given right now. Currently, this conversation, the conversation about race relations, is being led on one side by an organization called Black Lives Matter, and on the other side of this conversation, any number of conservative news sources or political outlets probably represented the best by Fox News. And honestly, I think both options that we are being given are bad options. We can do better. You are being asked to choose a side. Every single day it's being pressed upon you in this conversation. You're being asked to choose a side that either 
says that if you're sympathetic to the issues of racism, then clearly you must support riots, robbery, and maybe even anarchy. You want to defund the police and tear apart all of the major societal structures that are in place. You support critical race theory, intersectionality that views society and relationships primarily through this lens of powerful and powerless, oppressor and oppressed. And therefore, you must support a a movement that is called Black Lives Matter. Not just the sentiment, but a movement that stands against racial injustice, yes. But it also stands for tearing apart of nuclear families. And it supports abortion. It denies biblical definitions of human sexuality. And there are other accusations and activities attached there. As a movement leading this conversation... This is not a good option for the Christian. But on the other side, if you stand against the riots, then you are said to have no recognition of racism in our day. You're cold-hearted. You ignore the difficulty of trusted and loved friends, family, or neighbors who are of African-American descent. Clearly, you must support police brutality. And you blame the African-American community entirely for their own plight. Friends, this is not a good option for the Christian either. You see, part of the problem in this conversation is that you've been asked to pick a side. In fact, it's been demanded of you. And if you don't pick a side, then someone else will assign a side to you. But I have to tell you, you don't have to choose. At least, you don't have to choose one of these two sides as they're being presented to you. Because there's a better way. And before we talk about that better way, we need to recognize something. And I want to ask something of you. We need to recognize that the emotions around this issue are high. And that the emotions around this issue, in many ways, have the ability to drive us toward conclusion. The emotions for black Americans are high. Many still experience racism in our country. Not all, but many. And the killing of Ahmaud Arbery illustrated that. And I've spent hours over these past couple of weeks thinking through and talking about the complexity of issues here. And even though I can't always trust the news or our political leaders to present what is happening to us in a way that's most helpful, as I've reached out to my friends who are black or some black pastors that I know, some people that I do trust, just to hear their perspective, It's been incredibly helpful because it's one thing to hear it from a distance. It's another thing to hear it from someone that you know, someone that you love, someone that you trust. And their hurt is real. And the events of of recent history have reopened a number of wounds. And it's highlighted the fact that there are many 
who still experience acts motivated by racism in our country with some regularity. And they long for the day when this is not the case. Emotions are high for many white Americans as well. I've talked to many who feel like they are being attacked right now for not doing anything wrong. Yes, there are racists out there, but some have expressed they feel like they're being run over right now despite the fact that they're not racist themselves. And this makes it really hard to speak. And it makes it even harder to hear. And when you combine that with the fact that our conversation about race and race relations and racism and potential solutions is informed incredibly by our own personal experiences, by the people we know or don't know, by the sources by which we're getting information, by how facts are applied. This situation, this conversation, is incredibly difficult and complex. And emotions are high. And so I want to ask something of you right now. I want to ask as we enter these waters, just for the next number of minutes together, that where your emotions are high, where your blood pressure is starting to rise right now because we're even bringing this up, where your suspicion of my motives might be rising in your mind, I want to ask you to intentionally, to the best of your ability, posture yourself in such a way where you lower your defenses and where you say, I just want to hear what God's word says on this issue. Because there's hope. There's hope here. Friends, the world cannot solve the problem of racism. It has been trying for thousands of years. But Christians who have a mixed record on the problem of race relations. But the Bible gives us a framework to engage this issue and try to understand why it's happening. The Bible gives us a hopeful solution. And the Bible gives us reasons why we can go forward on this issue in unity, not in division, not in the growing divide of our country, not in the growing divide of these two sides that are being presented to you, but there's another way, a hopeful solution. And so let me saturate you with God's word and what it says about this this morning. Why is this happening? Why does racism continue to occur? Why do some police officers, not all in any sense, why do some of those who are meant to uphold and enforce the law abuse the power that's given to them? And why do completely lawless riots and burning and looting happen as a result? The reason for all three of those problems, racism, abuse of power, and riots, 
is the same. The human heart emanates lawlessness because of our sin. This is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. If you want to understand a framework for what's happening right now, I suggest that one of the helpful ways to understand it is in the terms of lawlessness because of our sin. Let me give you just a few examples. Jeremiah chapter 17, 9 in the Old Testament, the prophet writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the New Testament, we see sin talked about in terms of lawlessness repeatedly. Probably the most pointed example is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. John writes, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That's a striking statement, isn't it? Sin is lawlessness. And the law that he's referring to here is, of course, the greatest set of laws of them all. He's not talking about the law of public opinion. He's not talking about the social laws of social media. He's not talking about the laws of the great United States of America. And he's not talking about the laws of the world court. He's talking about the law of the Lord, which is perfect. And until we know God personally through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, we will always be fighting internally with lawlessness. And Jesus warns us about what this lawlessness results in. In Matthew chapter 24, he's explaining to his disciples the nature of the end times. It's a powerful passage where he talks about wars and rumors of wars and tribulations that are coming and a variety of difficulties. And then he says this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. He says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Because lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. Now, undoubtedly, he is talking about our love for God. But almost certainly attached to that love for God, as we see again and again, is the outpouring of that love toward other people. Lawlessness is contrary to love. Why do people act in wicked racism and hate toward others who aren't like them? Lawlessness, which is contrary to love. Why do some who are sworn to protect the law actually abuse their power, lawlessness, in their heart, which is contrary to love? Why do hundreds, if not thousands, turn peaceful protests as a useful voice into riots and looting and robbing and maybe even killing some of the black lives they claim to be protesting for? Lawlessness of the heart emerging forth in lawlessness of action. Lawlessness reigns on the inside without the intervention of God. And when it does, love for other people fades as the battle within rages. 
And Jesus warns that you want to make sure that this lawlessness does not blind you from righteousness. Because the danger is real. There are a lot of people out there that go through life that think they are on the level with God, that they are crusaders for righteousness and truth. All the while, the deep lawlessness continues on. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and on, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so here we see the why. Why is this happening right now? Why does racism remain a problem? Why does abuse of power manifest itself? Why do riots even happen? These are particular works of lawlessness from the inside. And it's part of the reoccurring human condition of sin. But my friends, there's hope. The hope, of course, from the Christian perspective is the hope of the gospel. The hope that says the gospel, that Jesus, the perfect son of God, came as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sins, to give new life to all of those who would put faith in them, to make their hearts new again. This is the Christian response at its very core to the racial tension of our day. The gospel gives us a framework to understand the why this is happening, but it also gives us the message of hope and the solution and the future for every single race and our interactions with each other. There's a lot of ways in this gospel in which this gospel is applied to lawlessness, Titus chapter 2 verse 4 gives us one such example. It says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus redeems lawlessness. He takes the raging battle inside of your heart and the actions that continue to flow out of that. And if racism and abuse of power and riots are all a result of lawlessness, and Jesus redeems the lawlessness of the heart and the lawless actions of a person, then we have a clear way forward, don't we? The world is going to try to solve the problem of racism in all kinds of ways. And some of them will be helpful, and some of them will help create a society that's more functional. But none of them will get to the core of the issue. Only Christianity offers the best, the most compelling, the most effective way forward. And we need to pause here for a second. Because when we say 
that racism and abuse of power and riots are sin issues at their core. It might be easy for someone to stop and say you're minimizing the hurt and the pain and the feeling of what's happening on the ground day in and day out. But my friends, there's a way. There's a way to talk about this. A posture by which we engage in this conversation. A disposition toward the other that recognizes the core root problem of the issue and at the very same time sympathizes with the suffering of brothers and sisters who have experienced these wicked things. We weep. We lament. We seek to understand. We try to listen. And we continue to hold to our eternal hope. This past week I've probably had hours upon hours of conversations on this issue. It's dominating the national reality right now. And as a white man talking to black men, I've been challenged in a number of ways. The Lord has challenged me and humbled me to seek to understand the things that I just don't know because I've never experienced them. And it's not my fault that I haven't experienced them. It's just the nature of my upbringing. And I've had to sort through what it feels like my own feelings of being attacked just for being white. I know some of you feel the same way. I mean, I've had black and Asian and Latino friends since my childhood. But I've never experienced what they've experienced. And when one of my friends tells me about his experience about going to the store or about going for a run, or he points out to me the things that I just don't really have to think about on a daily basis, the things that I don't have to worry about for my family, it's challenging for me. It's not coming from politicians or news sources or agendas. This is coming from people that I love, people that I know, people that I trust. And so I humbly try to listen I pray, I try to sympathize with my brothers and sisters who are different races than me. I try to think about what God says in his word. I try to decipher the truth in the midst of some really muddy waters and a bad situation with a bunch of bad actors and a bunch of ulterior motives and a bunch of false data and a bunch of true data, but data that we might not understand what it means. And my friends who are African-American, and my friends who are police officers, and my friends who feel like they're being accused for doing nothing at all. And I look at the two sides that are being presented to us, and neither one of them is palatable to me. And I hope it's not for you either. Because you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose the two sides that are being presented to you right now. You don't have to choose between standing up for law and order and being sensitive to acts of injustice and racism. You don't have to choose 
whether or not you're going to engage in this issue because it's simply going to fall along political party lines. You can say, you can say that black lives really do matter while at the same time rejecting the Black Lives Matter movement that expresses the heart of God on injustice in one sense but denies God in so many other senses. Nuance is required now more than ever. And the cross, the way of the cross, offers for us a way forward, a different way, a different framework for understanding relationships, for understanding race, for understanding reconciliation than those other two ways are currently presenting for you. And not only does Jesus forgive our lawlessness, but functioning as the perfect sacrifice to God, he does something else amazing. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 says, for by a, in verse 14 and on, he says, For by a single offering, he being Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my, my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In the midst of your lawlessness, Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, forgives you, purifies you, and then God writes his own laws on your heart and in your mind. He changes you. He renews you. He gives you a different outlook on people around you. A different way to navigate relationships, a new, fresh, powerful way to navigate racial differences. This, my friends, is called the law of love. Many of you can remember what it was like for you before trusting Jesus. You remember how the internal battle, that lawlessness continued to rage, the lack of hope, the mistreatment of others, the weariness that comes from this continuing fight against God. But when Jesus came into your life, he changed you. And he wrote a new law on your hearts. Some of you today might even feel exactly what I'm talking about. You want to do well by God, but the internal of the battle of that heart is on right now and you're growing tired the hounds of heaven are chasing you and you keep running the god of pursuit is continuing to pursue you and you know that he is not going to give up and you think to yourself and you wonder i don't know what is going to happen if i stop running how will i be received 
Will he be like the angry, abusive father and give me the belt if I surrender? But friends, you need to know, indeed, he will not. You will be much to your delight when you surrender to God and ask Jesus to forgive you, overwhelmed with sweet, gentle grace. And the lawlessness of your heart will be replaced with a different law. You might not be a racist or a rioter, or maybe you are. But you have the same heart. And God can change that heart and give it the law of love forever. Friends, I want to close this morning with eight practical, biblical reminders for you as you think about how we as Christians are to walk in a way that honors truth and facts and data and recognizes racial injustice and stands against it and expresses love toward other people and love to those among us who are experiencing difficulty. Eight practical biblical examples. Let's soak in God's word on this right now as we try to make sense of what's happening and what we can do about it. We start by saying that there's no place for racism in the Christian life. In Genesis chapter 1, number 1, Genesis chapter 127, we see that people are made in the image of God. That race and skin color and cultural differences all flow out after that reality. That you don't need to feel bad about being black or brown, and you don't need to feel bad about being white. God made you that way. And you are an image bearer of his. Every single person left with the indelible mark of the creator. And this begins to inform how we think about others around us. Number two, we see that the Christian life confronts racism. And that there's no place for it in that life. Jewish, Jewish Jesus offers living water and eternal life to a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Their racism was sharp. And if there was ever an act to overcome racism, it was, if there was ever an olive branch of racial reconciliation, if there was ever a way in which the Savior himself said, all people are redeemable and valuable and have this indelible mark of the creator upon them, it was right there. Further, God himself confronts Peter in Acts chapter 10 for his racism of Jewish supremacy. And he does so through a vision in which he proclaims that the salvation of God is for all people who have been made clean. And then we see Paul in Galatians 3.28 write this phrase about the Christian life. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. You are all one 
in Christ Jesus. Number three, the lawlessness of the heart is replaced by the law of love for those who know Jesus. Romans chapter 13, 9 and 10 says, Any other commandment is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What does that law of love mean practically? Well, that leads us to numbers four and five. Number four is this, that the gospel of grace and forgiveness calls upon each one of us to examine ourselves instead of pointing out the sins of others, particularly in the broader context of the world around us. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 4, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? (laughs) My friends, this is where posture and tone and disposition is so important in this conversation. Because I see a lot of defensiveness right now. A lot of that feeling of attack that might prevent you from examining yourself. And in every single issue of lawlessness in our heart, the call for the Christian is to examine, to repent, to seek to understand, to seek forgiveness. I'm not saying that you are racist or you aren't. But I think that every single person in a time like this needs to examine themselves. Number five. Because we are united to Christ and persons from other races and nationalities are united to Christ as well, through faith, we become united to each other. That the Christian family is the incredible example of a multiracial family with bonds that are closer together than even our own similar ethnicities, than even our own bloodlines. And the church is the place where all colors can not only coexist, not only tolerate each other, but can truly and genuinely function in this law of love. Paul says that part of the way that this looks is Romans chapter 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear with one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this is where the hard work of action begins for the Christian. Because what does it mean to bear one another's burdens What does it mean to bear the burden for a brother or a sister who is feeling marginalized or disenfranchised because they're a minority? Where such things exist, we must bear the burden of the other. If it were your wife that had that burden, 
you would fight for her. If it was your blood brother, if it was my twin brother who had that burden, I would fight for him. How much more for brothers and sisters who you will spend eternity with. And many of them are saying to us right now that racism is still a problem. I'm not talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm not talking about the politicians. I'm talking about my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I listen and I bear the burden to whatever way I can and I try to be part of the solution not the division number six you don't need to virtue signal in a world that demands you to make a statement for your company or on your Instagram account or out in the world to signal some kind of posture or virtue that has really no action attached to it. That you play the media game. Friends, it is much better to be virtuous than to virtue signal. Please hear me say that. It is so much better to be virtuous than to virtue signal. Micah 6, 8 he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord does require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Number seven, when times are dire, remember that there's hope. This past week, I've come across two images of hope that come to mind and that are encouraging. The first one, in a cemetery in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, you can read the following epitaph. It says, Sacred to the memory of Amos Fortune, who was born free in Africa, a slave in America. He purchased liberty, professed Christianity, lived reputably, and died hopefully. November 17, 1901 at the age of 91. It seems like Amos Fortune had many challenges, even more difficult challenges to overcome in his life. And whether our challenges are greater than his, and some are, or less than his, our hope comes from the same source. Another image of this came in speaking of hope and unity of Christians during this time of racial tension. An African-American pastor friend of mine recently said in a conversation with other pastors, we need to work together to find the solutions and the ways to move forward. Slavery would not have ended if Anglos hadn't believed it should, like the slaves. Desegregation wouldn't have happened if Anglos and blacks hadn't come together to make it happen. We need to come together now and talk. We can be angry in the middle of this, but not sin. We can have 
the healing agent and navigate the conversation between Anglos and blacks in the midst of this racial divide. We can continue to pursue unity when the world around us is spiraling toward division. There is hope. And finally, number eight. I want you to remember that God will have all of his people with him in eternity. That no matter how difficult the situation feels, the picture of the eternal kingdom of God in heaven is one that's described in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It says this. It says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all of the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You don't have to choose one of the two sides that they're presenting to you right now. Because the gospel helps us understand why this is happening. And it offers for us the most humble, the most loving, and the most hopeful way forward. I hope you're going on that journey with me. It's hard. It's complicated. It requires you to manage your emotions, to look to the other, but it's worth it. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Help us in these days to be faithful. Help us by your spirit to have a posture of humility. Show us in our hearts and our minds where we have sinned. Continue to prompt the law that you've written on our hearts and our minds, this law of love. We pray for our nation as a whole where tensions rage. Help godly leaders to rise with true solutions. And 
may you bring much glory to yourself, even in the midst of difficulty. Amen.